I love it when, the, when we sing that song. Opening words, so good. Closing words, so good. Trying to save my voice because I've got a cold, but just couldn't resist to sing as loud as I possibly could. <sighs> Resting in Christ is a great thing. We bring nothing to the table and He does everything for us. It's why we call it good news. Pray with me if you, if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the encouragement that comes to us supernaturally by the power of the Spirit through the church. Thank you that we could be encouraged even by hearing others sing things that are true about Jesus and true about redemption in Him. It's a great blessing to us. And we are thankful. We know that every good gift comes from you. And so we thank you for all of the good gifts, but we even thank you this morning for the church and the ministry that the church has in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the gospel is the good news regarding Jesus. The good news regarding Jesus. Jesus who came into this world... He came into this world and perfectly, always and forever, obeyed the commandments of God throughout his entire life as he grew as a boy, throughout his adulthood, until he went to the cross. He always obeyed God's law. Therefore, that means he perfectly loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means he loved his neighbor as himself. He did all of those things. And not only that, Jesus went to the cross voluntarily out of obedience to his father. That's what he came here to do. It's what he desired to do. He died a sinner's death. Sin means lawlessness. So he died a death that a lawbreaker deserves. And yet he never broke the law. He always did the right thing. So we have his life and we have his death and his death was perfect and complete to the point where he said it is finished. Not only that, he was raised from the dead just as he said he would be. And the Bible teaches that he was raised from the dead in confirmation of his perfect life and his perfect death. Indeed, he didn't just say he was living to fulfill the law. He didn't just say he was dying to bring forgiveness. His resurrection proved that he did the very things he said he was doing. The Bible says he was raised for our justification. And not only that, he then ascended into heaven as a great and perfect high priest and king, where the Bible says he always lives to make intercession, which is what a priest does. This is good news. This is the good news. This is the gospel, the good news about Jesus and about Jesus alone. So much so that there's nothing left to be done. So much so that that's why we as Christians, in light of Romans, in light of Galatians, and Christians have always believed this, in light of Genesis for that matter, his work is all his work so much so that it is received by us by faith, which means trust, by faith and only by faith. And that just helps us to even realize if that's true, that means he did everything necessary everything necessary so it comes to us we we try to come up with some kind of metaphor or some kind of image it comes to us by the empty hand of faith just given to us the good news about the lord jesus and his work received by us freely so there's no boasting period 
a challenge that we face as Christians, a challenge that we face as a Christian church. It's a challenge that Christians have always faced and will continue to face it until the Lord returns. And sometimes it's harder than other times. It seems to come in seasons. But a challenge that we face is there are some people who say they're Christians. And yet they say the gospel is something other than what we've just been talking about. That the gospel is some version of God helps those who help themselves. That the gospel is somehow Jesus does his part, you do your part, and eventually maybe, perhaps, maybe with some money involved, you might get to heaven one day. Or that the gospel is something that you live. Or that the gospel is something that will always make you happy and will always make you healthy and guaranteed to make you rich. And the list could go on and on and on. You get the idea. There are, in fact, unfortunately, many people who say they're Christians. And yet when you ask them what the gospel is or they tell you what the gospel is, it's something other than the good news about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, period, and therefore to be received freely by the empty hand of faith, period. In Second Timothy, that little letter, we call it a book sometimes, but it originally was a letter from Paul to Timothy. So an elder pastor, if you would, who's getting ready to be executed and die a martyr's death. And he, he's passing on the spiritual baton, if you will, like, like in a track meet. Now it's your turn to run. He's giving his swan song, his final words, if he's going to say anything that's really important to another pastor. And remember, Timothy's pastoring a church, the church at Ephesus. So everything he hears, he's going to share with the congregation. That's why I approach Second Timothy in the series we're doing as, yes, it's for me. Yes, it's for those of you who are pastors, but it's also for the congregation because that's how it would have worked originally. So these are things for us to help Omaha Bible Church with our identity to help me with my identity, our other pastors with our identities, but also for you as a, as a Christian. How do we cope? What's our stance? What's our demeanor during these hard times when there are people who say they're Christians, but they say Christianity is something other than we know what Christianity to be? And so that's what we're focusing on this morning, and what we're going to do is focus on a particular text, and it's going to be 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. So before this, Paul's been really stressing um, what the church is all about, and the church is about the gospel, it's about promoting the gospel, defending the gospel. There are many good things in the world, there are many good causes, but the church is tasked with this. And not all of the other things. We do other things in our lives, but the church is called to proclaim and protect the gospel. And now he's to the section where he's helping the church sort this one out. What, what, how do I handle this? What should my posture be toward those who walk away and they say the gospel is something that's not, for example? And so I hope it's helpful for us. Um, I have eight points. You don't need to take notes to be a Christian. But and sometimes I don't, and I think I'm a Christian, but sometimes I like to take notes and sometimes I need an outline. And so I have eight points on this particular outline. If it's helpful for you, if for no other reason, you'll know when I'm getting close to being done. <laughs> they teach you that in seminary, by the way. So, and I'm not even kidding. So anyway, so how about eight directions, eight, I called them last time, tactics 
approaches, points of instruction that Paul's giving Timothy so he can share them with the church about how to deal with this matter, how to cope, how to maneuver successfully without losing our minds. How do we do it in a way that honors Christ is what we're talking about. I'm going to review the first four today for those of you who weren't here and it's been how long has it been? It's been a while. So I was gone last week. The week before was Snowmageddon. Um, so it's been, it's been a few weeks. So I'll just review the first four, and then we'll pr- push on for new ground. Eight tactics for facing seasons of gospel unfaithfulness. Number one, I'll try to keep it to one word, at least for note-taking. Number one, first tactic, remind. Remind. Remind the church about what's true about Jesus and the gospel. Okay, so as people are leaving, and I don't just mean transferring their membership from one church to another because they got a job transfer or something. As people are leaving the gospel, if you will, as they're leaving, keep reminding the congregation about what's true regarding Jesus. Remind others about what the gospel is about. And it says in verse 14, remind them, and it is a command, literally keep reminding them of these things. And these things refers back to gospel things. And so, so much of a pastor's job description, I think, is reminding, 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 reminding. When I was talking about what the gospel is earlier, lots of you could have finished my sentences. You knew exactly what I was even going to say next. Remind, remind, remind. Peter talks about the same thing. I'm going to remind you of these things. The gospel's not that hard to figure out. It's pretty straightforward. It's been around for a long time. Pastor, why do you keep telling us what the gospel is? Well, in part because of this very command. Remind them and keep reminding them about what's true regarding Jesus so they can know what the gospel is and so they can know what the gospel isn't. Remind, 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 remind. It's so easy to, to have what we've talked about before as mission drift. Remind. Remember earlier, Paul said to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Significant that a pastor has to tell a pastor that ministry is about Jesus. You know, it's like, what? Yeah, that's right. So remind them. Keep reminding them that eternal life is found in Christ. That's review point number one. Number two, next tactic for facing hard times when some people are talking about Jesus, but it's not the Jesus you know. How do we cope with it? How do we deal with it? Number two, avoid Avoid, and it would be avoid quarreling with those who depart from the gospel. Avoid quarreling with them. Probably to not be distracted. If you spend all of your time fighting and quarreling, you're not going to even be doing the right things and the positive things. Verse 14 goes on to say, remind them of these things, and then it says, charge them. Charge them, and no doubt here in this context, charge the Christians, charge the believers at Ephesus, charge fellow believers in the 21st century today as well. Charge them before God not to quarrel. There's our idea not to quarrel about words and literally keep charging them. Never stop charging them. When you deal with those who deny the faith, even though they might still call it the faith, don't quarrel with those folks about words. Obviously it's serious. He says before God, he's not saying that words aren't important. That's not the idea. But even in from first Timothy, the words are gospel words. Basic truths, basic points of revelation about Jesus. And when they've denied those things, you don't need to keep fighting with them about these things. They've already moved on about gospel words, so you don't need to fight with them about the gospel words. I think it's pretty straightforward. 
First Timothy chapter 6 would be the cross-reference where it talks about these very things in verses 3 to 4. We won't take the time to go there right now. Um, he goes on to talk about why. How about in verse 14 toward the end there? Which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So it doesn't mean you don't correct them. It doesn't mean you don't disagree, but you end up dropping it and say, it's time to move on. We're not getting anywhere here. You're denying the basic words that are basic gospel words. And so... I'll be here for you later if you'd like to talk about the gospel, but we're not going to keep arguing this point back and forth. Seems to be the idea. Pretty reasonable, huh? Let's do another one. Let's review number three. Another point of guidance. Seek. Seek. In particular, seek God's approval in gospel ministry. Seek God's approval. So much of it seems to be, I, I, maybe I even want to argue with people because I, I eventually want them to, to give me approval or I want someone else's approval ultimately or, or, or I want to have approval because, wow, something great must be going on because everybody likes you. Timothy, seek God's approval first and foremost above all other things, which means you're going to stick close to the gospel. And notice what it says in verse 15. Do your be- best do your best, fight hard, work hard, be diligent, the New American Standard says, be diligent to present yourself to God. So many times I want to present myself to other pastors, or I even maybe want to present myself to you. Ultimately, that doesn't mean we don't want to be kind and generous to other people, but do your best, be diligent present to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's super helpful. And again, I, I don't think it should be licensed for us to be unkind to each other. Say, well, I don't care what you think. I just answer to God. Kind of has a nice ring to it. But uh, no, that's, I, surely that's not the idea in light of being kind to one another and other things and patient. But it is really healthy for us as a church, for us as pastors, those of us who are pastors, to, to keep in mind, ultimately, we're trying to please God. And ultimately, we're trying to please God as it would relate to the gospel of His Son. Right? He's clear about what His Son has done. He's clear about who His Son is. It pleases God. I need to remember, I, I want to please God ultimately by agreeing with Him about Jesus. That is a motivator. That, that, we, could, we could say it's the ultimate motivator. Rightly handling the word of truth. And sometimes this verse is used out of context. And I think some good things are done with verses out of context sometimes. Like, you know, you should be a really good Bible interpreter. And so you need to rightly handle the word of truth. I totally agree. But I'm going to encourage you to maybe keep this passage in its context. And it's a gospel context. Okay? So it is true we want to have good interpretive skills when we're interpreting the Bible. But it seems to be here... A synonym, he keeps talking about the word, the word of Christ, the word of truth, the truth. He's talking about the truth about the gospel. So we need to be careful. And I mentioned last time, I'll review just ever so quickly that he's talking, literally, it, you need to, to have this be straight. It could be used for plowing a field, right? So if you're plowing a field, I'm told I've never done one myself. I have never played a farmer on television, but you want to have straight lines, at least where you're supposed to have straight lines, right? Pay attention to detail is the idea. So as you're dealing with the truth about Jesus, pay attention to the details. The details actually matter. After all, this is what the church is called to proclaim and defend, to defend. 
The more likely one that we're more familiar with is Paul, who was a tent maker, is using the imagery of cutting straight, not a field, um, but when he's making a tent. Don't do shoddy workmanship when it comes to the truth about God's son. Okay? So let's be motivated. Let's be motivated to be as clear as we can and precise as we can. We can't know everything. We can't be great at everything. But let's do our very best with God's help to be as precise and clear as we can regarding Jesus. Who he is, what he's accomplished. That would be a good life goal for any Christian in any church. That's why the Apostle Paul says the gospel is of first importance. Let's make sure we work hard at that one. What is the gospel? Therefore, what isn't the gospel? Rightly handling this very, very, very important matter. And think about it. This matters for time, right, in this life, but it also matters for eternity. There are other important things. This would be the most important thing. I, I'm so encouraged that lots of Christians are, are getting the wake-up call on this one. I'm super encouraged by other churches, other pastors, the life of our local congregation, that this is something we take seriously. Doesn't mean we've arrived, but it is something we take seriously. Years and years ago, feel like I'm getting old because I guess that's what happens. Um, Pastor Chris Peterson and I were talking about some kind of more point, uh, point, point of greater minutia when it comes to theology and doctrine. And we had an interesting conversation regarding, you know, it's so interesting that the church has worked so hard in recent days to try to figure all this stuff out. And yet when you look at the church's doctrinal statement, it doesn't seem to be very clear regarding basic ABCs, one, two, threes regarding the gospel. And it was a good moment for us to just kind of talk and, as I recall, look at each other and think, you know what, at least on our watch in our lifetime, if the Lord allows, let's prioritize the gospel first and foremost because that's what the Bible says we should do. Okay, so amidst a crisis and what should we do, people are leaving the faith, amidst struggles with who should we be, what should our heart be, be, be all about, how about 1 Corinthians 15, gospels of first importance, this complements that you need to work hard and be diligent to rightly, accurately, appropriately, truly handle gospel realities. The good one. Not ashamed. In just a little while, he'll talk about in the next text, in verse 18, those who have swerved from the truth. So that's a good point of contrast to note in your Bible. So we want to rightly cut, rightly divide, straight line. Why? Because it's not admirable. It's shameful to swerve when it comes to the gospel. Okay, let's keep going. Let's do the fourth one. Are we on the fourth one? Review? It's going to be a five-parter. No, it's not. We're going to go fast. Next tactic, next point of direction, number four, avoid. Avoid. And that's another avoid. But this is avoid naturalism, avoid naturalistic musings. This is a really simple one to understand, and we'll do it simply. It says in verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble. It's also a command. Keep avoiding, steer clear of irreverent babble. It's just a word for unholy, unholy talk. And let's keep it in context. 
unholy, unspecial talk regarding Jesus. And he's saying that's so bad that that's just babble. But it's pretty straightforward if you just step back and think about it. Unholy would be ordinary talk about Jesus. And if it's an ordinary discussion about Jesus that would have to do with the gospel, now you're trying to explain the gospel as if it were ordinary, as if it were natural. In other words, don't try to explain the gospel by any ordinary means. It's extraordinary. It's supernatural, right? Don't, don't in your apologetics and trying to defend your faith, try to come up with different angles that can be explained. You know what? This is not ordinary. This is not typical. How, how could someone die a sinner's death on behalf of everyone who would ever believe? How could that be? How, how could, how could there be substitutionary atonement? How, how could that be? How could he die in my place? How could he live in my place? How could he be raised from the dead? Well, only if we can replicate it. Or maybe, unholy, if we borrow from the world of naturalism, we can just say, actually, it didn't really happen. It just happened in people's hearts. Or some other kind of naturalistic explanation. Christians, we should just admit it. You know what? We're supernaturalists. We, we appreciate science. We appreciate what can be done in the lab. We can, we appreciate history and patterns and how things work. But you know what? Jesus died a sinner's death, was raised from the dead, having fulfilled all righteousness on behalf of everyone who would ever believe, including Abraham, according to Romans chapter four. And he'd already been dead for a long time. Yeah. That's what we do. I'm not afraid of that at all. I'm a supernaturalist. And it's not irrational to be a supernaturalist. Even the substitutionary atonement and all those kinds of things when it comes to justice, it's not irrational. But you do need to introduce the supernatural in this whole thing. So I think that's what he's getting at in this whole discussion. It just becomes babble then. And so many denominations and schools have died a bad death. When they think, you know what, we think we could help more people if we just avoided the supernatural explanations of who Jesus is and what he's done. And it never goes well. And lots of their buildings are for sale. But there's this temptation, you know, if we could maybe just, if if we could just help more people and we could overcome that kind of objection and what would be wrong with that and saying, well, it's not really in history. It's something that happened in our imaginations or in our hearts and never goes well. Never, ever, 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 ever. He's saying, don't go there. Maybe that, that, that instinct, that knee jerk reaction to keep someone and to help someone, maybe that's a good kind of feeling. Who, who likes it when somebody walks away? Don't, don't corrupt and compromise the gospel because it doesn't actually lead to good. It leads to disaster. It says in verse 16, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Then it uses, he uses a, a repulsive metaphor in verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So it's killing, not life-fulfilling, life-giving. It leads to something bad. And then he names some people who've had this happen in their life. Think how tragic that would have been if you would have known those people in verse 17. 
In verse 18, they've swerved from the truth, the truth of the gospel, saying the resurrection has already happened. It's not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. It's talking about Christian's resurrection. Because you know what? It's not really actually going to happen. It just happens in our hearts. It's that kind of thing. They're upsetting the faith of some. Then he says in verse 19, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. So don't freak out about who's leaving and who's staying. Do trust in the sovereignty of God. And then he also says in verse 19, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Maybe in a general sense, like ethics, that would be a true statement. Maybe iniquity as it would relate to the gospel, that would also be interesting in the flow of the context. Let's do number five. Next, how do we cope when this happens? Disassociate is the next word, the next tactic. Disassociate. In other words, to fill it out, disassociate yourself from false teachers. How about verse 20? Please look there with me if you would. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Please keep it in the context. He's using a metaphor, a word picture, and he's been talking about, he's going to talk about, he's been talking about those who leave. And he's saying, like in a great house, if you're, if you have wealth, you're going to have everyday dishes and then you're going to have the special stuff kind of thing. You've, you've got extra, you've got special. Actually, the word for ordinary could actually be the stuff that they use to go in the bathroom in. So gross, right? So you got all kinds of utensils in your home and some are for the nice occasions and some are for the unspeakable occasions. And it seems in the flow here, he's using the metaphor to encourage Christians and pastors to disassociate with the unclean stuff. Okay, let's keep reading. I think I can show it to you. Therefore, if anyone, this is verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. So stay away from the dishonorable. Back to verse 20, right? False teachers in verse 18. He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. We, that, that's what every Christian wants. Even if we've never put it that way. That's what every church and every pastor wants. We, we, we want to do the honorable thing. We, we want to be used for the good stuff, not the bathroom stuff. Okay? Of course, who, who says, I want to be, I want to be dishonorable? Who says, we, we want to be a bad church that God doesn't like? And he's just using the metaphor, the word picture. We, we want to do the right thing. We want to be honorable. We want to be pleasing to God. We, we want to be enjoyable for other people, ultimately. And he says, the way you do it, right? The way you do it is by cleansing yourself from what is dishonorable. He is calling for, for a distancing and a separating. And I think in the flow of things, he's talking about distancing yourself from those who don't, don't tell the truth about the gospel, even though they call it the gospel. Something that Christians are supposed to do. So how do we do that in Omaha, Nebraska, as Christians, as a church? So some people have taken it to mean, therefore, we need to have some kind of monastery or some kind of commune or some kind of place where we're all going to go and hide and have nothing to do with Christian or with anyone who's not a Christian. 
Doesn't seem to be the intent. The, 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 the imperative isn't leave Ephesus, right? Which would have been a worldly city in good ways and in bad ways. He, he, you don't get any sense in this letter that he says, okay, therefore all of you who are not pastors, quit your jobs and leave your neighborhoods unless you happen to live in the parsonage. You don't get that sense. So I'm just mentioning those things to you so we don't get that sense when it comes to application. There are all kinds of normal things, natural, common things that we do in this world in Omaha, Nebraska, and beyond. Ordinary things. But he seems to be talking to the church as the church. They're called to proclaim and protect the gospel. Let's apply it and distance themselves as the church, if you will, and as gospel speakers from those who would say otherwise. That's how I would apply it. That's how most Christians have applied it. I think that's how we should apply it. It might mean when somebody asks us to do some kind of tri-faith initiative, we have to say no. That kind of thing. Or when someone says they're a Christian and Christianity to them is, if you do enough and try hard enough, maybe God will accept you. I don't want to be mean about it, but I'll have to say, I think we're going to pass on that. Actually, I think that has to be how it is. Let's move on. Next, next tactic, number six, flee, flee. To elaborate, flee youthful desires. It says in verse 22, so flee youthful passions. Your translation might say lusts, but it's a word that can be positive, can be negative, but obviously here it's something negative because you're fleeing from it. But let's leave it more neutral. It's not limited to something sexual. Flee youthful passions. Okay, what do young people do wrong? How much time do we have? And who counts as young? (laughs) Well, I don't think he's speaking in generic terms. I, I, my best take on this, and at least some commentators would agree, flee youthful passions. He's calling Timothy to not try to do something new and make a name for himself. One thing we do, because we've all been there, unless we're not old enough to have these youthful passions, is we want to make a name for ourselves. And it's pretty common for this is the way I was raised. And at least for a time until we come to our senses, we're going to do it a different way. And I might be wrong, but I think that's what he's getting at. Paul is the elder brother, if you will, saying, here's how you do it. And here are the old gospel paths that have been the old gospel paths for a long time, actually. And so what I want you to do is stick to the script to remember Jesus Christ and don't go for the novel stuff. Don't swerve. Just keep cutting the straight gospel lines. Run away from that passion and desire to make a name for yourself or to do it a new way. Again, I might be wrong. There are other things that in our youth we do wrong, wrongly. But I'm going to take it that way. I'm going to take it that way in light of where he's been, in light of where he's going. Stick to the gospel script. Some commentators say, well, young people like to argue. Well, sometimes that's true. Um, Young people are impatient. Sometimes that's true. 
I'm most comfortable with. Stay faithful to the gospel just like I was faithful to the gospel by the grace of God. Run away from that temptation to do something different and new. Someone else said, young people think they know everything, but what do they know? (laughs) Actually, that's not a bad insight from a commentator. If you think you know everything, maybe you won't listen to the Apostle Paul. Maybe there's a better way to do church. Maybe there's a better way to retain people who are walking away from the faith. Timothy, flee that passion that you would naturally have to do things differently because maybe you think you know better. I'm here to tell you, you don't. Again, it is a command and it's a present tense command. Keep fleeing. Keep running away from this idea that you have a better way. And then it says in verse 22, and pursue, that's also, and keep pursuing. Kind of interesting. that Now it seems like he wants him to, to, to use the, the passion of youth. So flee this youth, youthful desire, but youth pursue things, right? They have energy. So now I want you to act like you're young and I want you to run after this idea and pursue, verse 22, righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Passionately, fervently run after those things. And I'm going to suggest to you, I think those are the old things. Those are the old gospel kinds of things that the Apostle Paul has, has built his stock and trade in. Because those, those words he's using there are, are gospel kinds of words. Don't try to do the new thing a different way. Stick to the script and passionately pursue righteousness. Keep telling people what God requires. It's the law word, right? Keep telling people they have to obey God perfectly, personally and perpetually. Just keep doing that. Because that tees up the gospel. Keep telling people that and it'll help them know that they're lawbreakers and sinners. Keep doing that. Don't say, oh, you're nice and God's nice. Isn't that nice? No. Flee that youthful lust. Run away from that. But also run to keep emphasizing righteousness. Keep emphasizing faith. Faith in Christ for justification. Faith in God's perfect promises. The only way Paul elaborates again and again and again, and Timothy knows the only way you can actually have a righteous status before God is only by faith. So keep pursuing these concepts, righteousness, faith, love. We can talk about that from both ways, right? If, if God loves us and sends his son for us and we're going to respond and, and, and we're going to respond to that in faith. And then what are we going to do? We're going to tell other people about this great message. Also, not only that, we're going to tell people that God's perfect requirement is to love and we don't do it perfectly. So we need a savior. And now that we have a savior, we want to love out of a safe place. I mean, he's using all these just heavy duty loaded words that Timothy would have been well aware of and peace, peace with God, which brings peace with other people. The only way to have true peace with other people is through peace with God. Romans five, one, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And I'm going to suggest that calling on the Lord from a pure heart in a gospel kind of context is you're keeping the gospel the gospel. You're not trying to make a name for yourself as a youthful passion. 
You're a true pastor. You're a true Christian. You're a true church. Number seven, refuse. Refuse. To elaborate, refuse foolish speculations. I've lost track of how many people I personally know who once professed faith in Christ and no longer profess faith in Christ. Thankfully, they're not the majority, but they really stand out and they really hurt sometimes. And some of them, thankfully not all of them or most of them, then take it upon themselves to be a teacher of this new gospel that's not the gospel. So how do I, how do I engage? What do I do? What, what do we do? Verse 23, have nothing to do with. Another present tense imperative. Keep having nothing to do with. Foolish, ignorant controversies you know that lead to quarrels. NIV says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. I just want to say that for those of you who are not allowed to say stupid in your house. It wasn't one of the rules in my house growing up. I think maybe we were called that, but I'm not sure. (laughs) He's being harsh on purpose. If we're saying that the gospel is something other than it is, we should be opposed. And we should be opposed as if we have foolish and stupid arguments. That's what he's saying. I think it's interesting, the first word that he uses, foolish, moros, where we get moron. So he's saying these are moronic arguments. And then the next word, ignorant, uh, could be translated untaught or uninformed. So many times, the objection is not based upon reality. Sometimes it is, and we just have to disagree over that matter. But a lot of times the objection is based upon ignorance. You don't even know what the argument is. You don't even know the history of the doctrine and why we say the things that we say about this. But you oppose it. And eventually, if they're leaving and they've gone away, the Apostle Paul is saying, you just turn it off. Again, I don't think the Apostle Paul is saying, Christians are illogical it's not the that's not the concept it's not the idea but when there's a bad argument and that is your argument you eventually say you know what i I got i got nothing for you you don't you don't even in other words you don't even know what you're talking about then he says in verse 23 you know that they breed quarrels So they're controversial issues, and you know that they breed quarrels, so just, just stay away from it. I almost get the sense it's a command to stay off of that platform formerly known as Twitter. <sighs> My life would be so much better without X. <laughs> but I've made really good friends, like true friends. It's a hard one, isn't it? 
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's do the final one. Number eight, the final tactic for coping with gospel departures. Okay. Number eight, show. Show. Let's say show compassion. We are going to show compassion. So I think a lot of this stuff so far has been pretty harsh. Pretty, pretty strong. And yet it seems to now be seasoned with some salt. Some, some generosity, maybe seasoned with some sugar, I should say. It says in verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. It's kind of interesting. He just said this stuff breeds quarrels. And now he says, but the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. You shouldn't be known for being the one who is always the arguer, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Verse 25 says right there, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So there's all this strong stuff and yet there's something soft at the end. And my first thing when it comes to me, when it comes to this matter, I would just ask you to pray for me. And I'll pray for you and we can pray for each other. This is hard. He's not saying just roll over and take it and never disagree with anybody. Most certainly, or he wouldn't have said the other things he's been saying. This is the Apostle Paul who calls false teachers dogs and evil workers. He does that. How about this? Even in First and Second Timothy, he says, fight. He says in First Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, including for the faith. And, and in Second Timothy, he ends with, I have fought the good fight. He's a total fighter. Because if you're going to have a gospel to promote, you have to protect it. This is why elders have to be one of the qualifications in Titus is not only able to teach sound doctrine, but also to be able to refute those. That's fight against, quarrel with, to a degree, those who contradict. So what do we do with this? I, I, I say we have to say, God, help us with balance. That's why I said pray. How, how exactly do we do this? How do we stand opposed to someone's face, as the Apostle Paul would say? And to do so in a way that's gentle. I don't know. Exactly. But I know that it's true. I know that it's important. Maybe it's once you get out of the ring, you're a gentleman. (laughs) Just to use a metaphor. Gospel is opposed, therefore we will oppose and not cower for the sake of others. But there's a place for being gentle and kind to people, even those who oppose the gospel. I don't know exactly how we do it, but I know that I try to do it. I'm not claiming to be, I haven't arrived, I'm I'm not perfect to this, but I have said on more than one occasion in earnestness, sometimes people don't take it in earnestness, but I in earnestness say, I want you to know that if and when you work through all this, we will be here for you. And to really mean that. And to really mean that that will be the case. I've heard it said about some preachers that are pretty strong preachers. I've heard people say, it's amazing how nice that person is in real life. I think that's helpful. When you're not enraged in the battle, 
you're a kind person. It just makes a lot of sense when you have the Spirit of God in you and you can demonstrate love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. So many times what the Bible has to say ought not be isolated from what the Bible has to say elsewhere. We need to fight for the gospel. We need to be all about promoting it and protecting it at all costs. It's why we exist as a church. We need to oppose false teachers. We need to eventually cut off even those who aren't false teachers, but who walk away and still want to argue. Maybe they're not teachers. And you say, enough, enough of this. But we do need to, as he says here, be compassionate. I do love you. I care about you. And I want you to know that if the Lord works on your heart, I will be here regardless in the future for you. Let's close it out with what he says in verse 25. Here's why. This is so good. That God may perhaps, so good that he doesn't presume upon what God is going to do. That God may perhaps, oh, the mystery of God's sovereign will. That God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I just wrote in the margin, wow. Only God knows. Only the gospel saves. But maybe God will use you and your loving kindness and generosity even to those who have opposed you to work in your heart so you'll listen to, to work in somebody's heart so they, they listen to the gospel. It reminds me of our missionaries in India who were evicted from their residence recently because they're Christians and because they have Christians over. And if memory serves, they, even after they were evicted, were reaching out to the manager, offering meals and hosting, because that's what they had been doing. And I think that's a great example of the grace of God working, even as it would regard your seeming enemies. Who knows what the Lord might do in time? Only the Lord knows. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for churches around the world, none of which are perfect, but we're so thankful for the fellowship of other believers, men and women and boys and girls who know that the gospel is the good news regarding Jesus and his perfect and complete and sufficient work. And we count it an honor to not only have believed it, we count it an honor to proclaim it with joy and passion. We count it an honor to seek to defend it and protect it. And we long for the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Until then, may we live for him. May we boast in him for the good of humanity and for his fame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.